History is fascinating, isn't it? I believe a good study of history will provide hope and direction, caution, a dose of reality, and vision for the future. It also provides encouragement for you and me. As you know, February is African American History Month, Black History Month. And a few years ago, we aired a conversation about a person from history. And I want you to hear about her today from two guests. But before we do that, my first question is, do you know who Carter G. Woodson is? They put his face on a stamp in 1984. Well, why'd they do that? (laughs) Who was he? What is special about Carter G. Woodson? We're going to begin there straight ahead on a Best Of Conversation of Chris Fabry Live. Our program is recorded today. I am away from the microphones. Hopefully, I'll be back with you live tomorrow. I sure hope you enjoy this conversation at the Radio Backyard Fence. Thanks to Ryan McConaughey doing all things technical. Tricia is our producer. And thank you, Back Fence friends and partners. As you may know, this month, which is quickly leaving us, we are giving a helpful resource. If you feel a stirring inside for more, you're living for God as best you know how, but there's something missing. There's something else, something bigger, something that is described in Ron Hutchcraft's book that is so helpful, so challenging, and so true. The book is titled A Life That Matters, Making the Greatest Possible Difference with the Rest of Your Life. I think it will motivate you not to hide your light under a bushel. Let it shine. And he shows you how to do that step by step. Give a gift of any size. We'll send you a copy of A Life That Matters, Call us today. It'd be real encouraging to hear from you. 866-95-FABRY, 866-953-2279, or go to chrisfabrylive.org. Get in touch today, and thanks for being a friend or partner with us. As I said, our program is not live today. If you hear a phone number, if you hear dated information, disregard that. But let's go back to 2017. Wow, seven years ago. Here's how I began our conversation. Here's my question. Why do we have African-American History Month? I used to think that it was to instill a sense of pride in African-Americans who have been somewhat left out of the written history of our country. I used to think it was a time for African-Americans to celebrate and for all of us to honor people who've made a contribution to the U.S. And both of those are true. But I don't think Black History Month is mainly for African-Americans. I also don't think it exists to school white Americans or Americans of European descent or to make white people feel bad about the plight of African-Americans and their struggle. I believe, and feel free to disagree with me, I believe African-American History Month is for Americans, period. All Americans. And if we push aside this aspect of history in the lives of some extraordinary Americans who came from African descent, we do damage to all of our lives, no matter the hue of your skin or where you're from in the world. I mentioned Carter G. Woodson. He was born in 1875 in Virginia. He was the son of slaves. His father helped Union soldiers during the Civil War, and he moved his family. This is how I got to know him because I was studying uh, coal mining in West Virginia. He moved his family to West Virginia 
when he heard that there was a town there, a big town, Huntington, West Virginia, they were building a high school for black children. Carter Woodson came from a large family. He was, his family was poor and he couldn't go to school. So he learned himself, basically self-instruction and wanting more ed, uh, education. He went to a different county than where he, where he was living and he did some uh, coal mining and he was able to devote a, only a few months a year to his schooling. But eventually he wound up at the University of Chicago and he wound up at Harvard he served as dean of a university in my home state of West Virginia, the known then as the West Virginia Collegiate Institute from 1920 to 22. And he devoted himself basically to study and write about African-Americans or, as it was known then in the 1920s, Negro history. And in 1926, Carter G. Woodson pioneered the celebration of Negro History Week designated for the second week in February. Why second week in February? Well, two birthdays. Can you know who the two birthdays were? Two people in history who were very important to African-Americans, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Negro History Weeks appeared across the country in schools and before the public. Woodson and the people working with him set a theme. They gave study materials. They sent this out for teachers, uh, historical plays, posters, all of that kind of stuff. And in 1937, at the urging of Mary McLeod Bethune, Woodson established the Negro History Bulletin, which focused on the annual theme. As black populations grew, mayors issued Negro History Week proclamations in cities around the country. And those basically are the roots of African-American History Month. And the name I just mentioned is the person then that we're going to focus on in this hour. Mary McLeod Bethune or Bethune was born in that same year that Carter Woodson was born, 1875. Same situation. Her parents were slaves. She was number 15 of 17 children. But her passions and her faith would take her on a slightly different course in life than Carter G. Woodson. And you'll find out about that straight ahead. We'll spend the rest of the hour talking about Mary McLeod Bethune. Two guests for you. Dr. Mary Cloutier is Associate Professor of Intercultural Studies at Moody Bible Institute, a Ph.D. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. Dr. Cloutier, am I getting your last name right? Am I Cloutier, saying that right? yeah, the French Cloutier. way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like it. Thank you for being here. Jamie Janos is on the line with us. She's the content strategy manager at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, served on the faculty for 16 years, author, speaker, columnist. Jamie Janos, thanks for being with us today. Oh, glad to be here, Chris. Um, Mary, Dr. Cloutier, first, you respond to what I said about African-American History Month. Agree, disagree, sort of agree, sort of disagree? Uh, that is for all of us? Absolutely. It's for Americans. It's, it's our history. It's It's including... Uh, details that should have been added into history anyway, but highlighting it, it's it's a great thing. Jamie, agree? Oh, I agree. Um, I'm the daughter of a history teacher, so I have to love it. Um, but I think the more the more we get older, the more we realize how many stories we just don't know. So bringing these stories to the surface is so valuable. Yes. All right. Well, let's begin because, Dr. Cloutier, you're talking about this this week at Moody Bible Institute, and about this person in history who actually knew D.L. Moody. Is that true? She did, yes. 
Tell me about that. One thing that's part of Mary's story is that when she came to Moody, she was coming to prepare to be a missionary. About the middle of that first year that she was here, she got a a letter from the Presbyterian board that we don't know the contents of it, but it essentially told her that there wasn't a place for her on the mission field. And we find in her file that D.L. Moody, um, probably after she got that bad news, um, had a conversation with her and discussed her giftedness and said, well, you know... Um, you're a very gifted woman, you know, you could probably well use that among your own people in the South. And so I know that she had um, significant conversations with him and he had a great influence in what she ended up becoming, um, which was not a missionary, but um, certainly uh, an American leader, an educator, and a proponent of... um, uh, black civil rights and, and uh, education for African-Americans. Yes. Uh, Jamie, anything to add to that as far as Moody's concerned? Yeah, just she talks about her experiences at Moody. Certainly, um, she was one of the earlier African-American students there, but participated in singing groups and um, traveling and just working in the city. So I think that experience really kind of cemented her heart for Christian mm-hmm. work. But that letter, I, and I can't, when I mentioned this, I was telling my wife, Andrea, and here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh-huh. And she was told that they, there was no room on the, on the mission field for her. Her jaw dropped and she said, what? <laughs> what? Who told her that? <laughs> and, and, and she did not allow that to keep her from a, you know, a vision for the future, Dr. Cloutier, did she? Exactly. Um, all of the training, all of the giftedness that she had were, were poured into yet another type of kingdom work. And so nothing, absolutely nothing was wasted. Hmm. We're going to talk more about Mary McLeod Bethune today on Chris Fabry Live. You can find out more about our guests at chrisfabrylive.org. And our featured resource for this hour is a book that includes material about who we're talking about today. The title is When Others shuttered. You can find out more at chrisfabrylive.org. When Jamie Janice was on with us and we were talking about her book, When Others Shuddered, I told her, I want to do a whole program just on Mary McLeod Bethune. Maybe that name is new to you. Maybe you've never heard it before. Maybe you know about Bethune Cookman, and uh, and you have a question, you have a comment. Dr. Mary Cloutier is with us on uh, uh, the faculty at Moody Bible Institute, and Jamie Janos, other of when others shuddered. I'm interested in in her before we get to all the accomplishments. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in her, the little shack that she was born in. And her family situation and growing up with parents who knew what slavery was all about. Tell me about those early years, Dr. Cloutier. Okay. um, What we know about Mary is that she grew up in a very tiny shack, as you said. There were 17 kids. Um, She was the first one to receive an education. Um, Her Most of her siblings had also... Uh, been born in slavery. She was born after slavery. Her parents knew that she was gifted. She just was a a sparkly little person. Um, 
And the Presbyterian board brought a school to that community when she was a small girl. So she did benefit from the opportunity for education. Um, and then um, she had to, she had prayed to God that he, he would allow her to go to high school. And there was no high school in her community. And then he answered her prayer by um, by uh, sending somebody to tell her the news that a lady in Colorado was willing to pay the tuition of one mm. African-American girl to go to high school in a neighboring state, North Carolina. And she had mm. been chosen. Now, she's in South Carolina mm-hmm. in Maysville. Sumter? In Maysville. Maysville. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how far away is North Carolina? I mean, this must have been really far for her. Well, for her, it would have been the first time she was away from her family. And um, she was 12 years old. That was a big leap. But mm-hmm. her family and her community were so excited. And this was an answer to prayer. So I, I think she was a very brave girl and she was a, an, a, uh, an adventuresome girl. Yes. Um, because she would later do the same thing when she went from uh, that high school that she went to to uh, Chicago to Moody Bible Institute. Yes. Oh, I've got tons. Of, Jamie, anything to add to that story of of going to high school or her young age? You know, the younger years. Yeah, it, you know her in her writing. She has talked about the fact that when she was a little girl, she remembered having two wishes: one that she could learn to read someday, because that just wasn't available to them at all. Um, and then the second is that she could have glass windows um, in a house. <laughs> Um, so that shows you the level of, you know, the poverty that she was born into and came from. And, you know, if you go today to her um, home, which is a h- historically preserved in Daytona Beach, you can walk through her home and, and there's something about seeing those glass windows and knowing that that was something she wished for even as a young child. So there was yes. this aspiration of, that she was meant for something more and that God would use her. Yeah. Y- you begin this of odyssey of her life by talking about her working out in the sun and doing the same things that her parents did, though she was not a slave, she was still outside picking cotton and was doing the same type of work that they did um, when she was a child, right? Right. Well, they were still working even once they owned their plot of land or were being working to buy it. Um, so there was still that recoup, you know, it wasn't an instant transformation um, obviously, after slavery was gone, they were still in in states of poverty and really just trying to work hard and toil the land. Yes. Now, you also, I've got, I got a quibble with you, Jamie, on this. It says, you write, she was homely but bright. And as I look <laughs> at her picture that is included, or at least the one that I see here, I do not see, I, she looks stunningly beautiful to me. Oh, I think so, too. It was more self-declared that she always felt like she, <laughs> although, yeah. you know, as a as a more mature woman, she was really into fashion and buying um, clothes and, and um, really changed her ways. But as a young adult, as a young person, she felt homely and plain. She would talk about that. Yes. Okay. So um, what about her faith then as a child and then how it grew when she came to Moody Bible Institute, Dr. Cloutier? Mm-hmm. Uh, do we? What do we know about what she believed about God and about Jesus and the Bible? 
Well, I have the impression she came from a faithful family. And then again, she was a 12-year-old who had finished her education at about the sixth grade and prayed to God that he would allow her to go to high school. So she, of course, had some measure of faith already that she would go to the very one who could transform her life in that way. And then um, she went to Scotia Seminary. That, that was what we would call her high school. And um, that was a place that continued to mold her faith and, and give her a heart for um, not just the education she was earning, but a, a heart for serving God in ministry, whether it was in education or, or on the mission field. They, they were inculcating that uh, with the girls that they were uh, training. Jamie, what about what she read? Either as a because she's born ten years after the end of the Civil War. I mean, that just blows my mind yeah. right there, just to think of that time in history. But when she when she learned to read, which her parents probably weren't allowed to learn to read, um, what happened to her? What did she read? You know what? I don't know exactly what she read. I know that she was steeped in the Bible, and I know that she was determined that reading itself was a key to freedom for African Americans. So so from that point on, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure she read everything she could get her hands on, but um, just really wanting to soak in all the knowledge and things that she hadn't known before. Anything to add to that, Mary? Uh, no, I would agree. You write... As an adult, Mary remembered the deep longing in her heart for something more. When I was a little girl, a little child, kneeling under the old apple tree in the corner of our garden, my hands were clasped and my eyes turned heavenward. Oh, how fervently I besought the great spirit, which I could not see, but felt to open the way for me to become trained and prepared so that I might leave the cotton field and go out into the great world and do a great work of service." And that she did. She thought it was going to be, though, as a missionary, and that mm-hmm. didn't work out, as you've already discussed. So, Dr. Cloutier, mm-hmm. how did her mind then or her heart turn from mission work toward what she eventually started doing? Well, it didn't turn easily. I think it just transformed when she realized that particular door was closed. But while she was at Scotia Seminary, um, they had missionary visitors. They would be reading Presbyterian magazines that talked of the, um, you know, the work of various women missionaries in particular. And there were, on the very field where she was applying, there had been African-American women serving, and she knew that. And so um, her desire was actually, and her expectation was to be a missionary in Africa. Um, She was dumbfounded when she came to Moody, and while she was here, she she got the rejection letter because there was no reason for her to believe that she would. Um, I, I just admire her for turning that around and instead of becoming bitter that she she just simply poured herself into the next ministry opportunity. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Did she ever discover where her family came from? Many people could tell through the generations of slaves that were taken from Africa to this world, this country. They knew the area from Africa from which they came. Did she have any idea? I'm not aware of that. Yeah, I didn't run into that either. I just know that 
Africa was a dominant theme Mm -hmm. of her life, Mm -hmm. even once ended. Mm -hmm. Um, She had this huge collection of little elephants, and they're still there in her house all over that you'll see. And it was kind of her symbol, you know, that 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 was where she wanted to go. Yes. So in in a lot of people's lives through history, we see that there's some kind of a wound, some kind of, of the thing that's holding them back. And instead of it doing that, mm-hmm. it's actually a springboard for which they achieve great things or God works in them to achieve great things. What happened in Mary McLeod Bethune's life that was that uh, that wound that catapulted her? Dr. Cloutier, do you have an answer? Um, it was that rejection letter. Again, she, was, she came to Moody to finish off her preparation to be a missionary. That was the one thing that she was planning for. And again, as, as I said, there were African-American women already serving in Africa with the Presbyterian board. And um, what had happened in 1894 is they were suddenly making a shift in policy based on discomfort of um, missionaries on the field. Um, this was at the height of colonialism. Um, there were racial tensions. Um, uh, the The... Missionaries on the field to which she was applying were not saying this openly publicly, but they were writing back and forth to the the Presbyterian board saying, you know, many of them were saying, I don't know if this would work well being an integrated field because the Presbyterian had a black American mission field in Liberia. Um, and this field had had one African-American missionary, and it wasn't known publicly, but privately it was a problem that there were racial tensions because she was a strong personality, and she was doing very well. And um, um, that missionary uh, stopped working on the field in 1889, so I'm sure Mary would have known about her, but not the negative part. Um, And they kept it very quiet that there had been uh, white-black tensions on the mission field. And the missionaries were worried that if they had an Af- and this I'm saying this based on their letters to the board, they were afraid that if they had an African-American on equal standing with the white missionaries, that the Africans in the local community would also expect equality which Mm. ought to set our teeth on edge just hearing that. But that's what they were writing in private letters to the board. Well, and I think, you know, fast forward and look at what happened in the military in the U.S. Mm -hmm. decades later, and you see this same kind of tension that's what, and and let's let's not judge them too quickly Mm -hmm. because the world was a different place in 1865, 1875, 1895, 1900. There were different forces at work. We look at it from, you know, Mm -hmm. our enlightenment here and looking backwards saying, how in the world could they think that way? But there are, were forces at work that were bringing them that were, you know, progressing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, what do you have to add to that? Boy, it just, yeah, I resonate with what Mary said. That letter itself, hearing that, especially through our modern-day eyes, um, and especially considering her age, it would be enough to just shut somebody down. So you feel this call from God to ministry. You do everything and actually experience some miracles to get there. And then you get a big no. You know, this Mm. isn't going to happen Everything you've planned for is done. Um, and 
And instead of that being the end, it becomes another beginning for her. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what is really special about her story. What did that then catapult her in to do, Jamie? Where did she go next? Well, she went south, um, kind of taking Moody's advice in a sense, and began signed up to teach at a mission school in Palatka, Florida. Um, it was there that she met her husband um, and was married and taught there for some time. And that school teacher there encouraged her further south to Daytona. Um, there may be more details in there in that transition. It was a little longer, but people were going heading south to work on railroads and building that at the time. And she saw a big need for education of especially African-American young people um, because they had no opportunities for schooling. So she Mm. started to say, I need to start a school. And she ended up in Daytona Beach, which is about two miles from where I live today, um, to start a school for young people, a very, very small school. Uh, I see in the book, too, she sold sweet potato pies and fried <laughs> fish. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the interesting part of where I, I live now, it's not, it was known um, for her. She actually, her college is here today and is still a, a major landmark. But the other place is known for John D. Rockefeller. So it was known for, as a very wealthy tourist area. So these wealthy people were coming down here to get away from the um, cold north and to have summer homes. So she was here in the midst of a mix of people, some very poor people and some very, very wealthy people. Hmm. And she did. She sold everything to try to get money to fund her That's Jamie Janos, author of When Others Shuddered. Dr. Mary Cloutier is also with us as we talk about Mary McLeod Bethune. Our program is not live. This is a conversation we had seven years ago. And you're going to hear more straight ahead on Moody Radio. I get emails, uh, phone calls from people who say, I can only listen to the half hour, your last half hour of your program every day. And uh, if you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did. Jamie Janos is the author of When Others Shuddered. It's our featured resource, chrisfabrylive.org. Dr. Mary Cloutier is Associate Professor of Intercultural Studies at Moody Bible Institute. And she's been teaching about Mary McLeod Bethune because Mary was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute in 1895. Did she graduate mm, in 95? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you said in the break, I had no idea that you had this that there is a response that she gave to the rejection mm-hmm. letter. Mm-hmm. Can you read that to us? Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, let me give you a background. I was working on my PhD about African-Americans who were serving in the Gabon and Carisco mission in what is now Gabon, which was my field when I was a missionary. And I saw Miss McLeod's name keep popping up and discovered that she was being considered for that field. Um, and then while I was at the Presbyterian Archives in uh in Philadelphia, I chanced across her handwritten letter 
to the Presbyterian board after she received their letter of rejection. So to to lead up to this, you have to understand oh. that she had just arrived at Moody Bible Institute um, in July or August, and she receives this letter from them in December, and she's writing from her room at Moody Bible Institute this letter. So here's her response to them. Dear friends, your letter of December 18th, 1894 has been before me for some time. I have prayed over that letter time and time again, asking the Holy Spirit to give me only out of that letter what you have intended me to have. I think I have been rather unfortunate in getting out of it what I have. Indeed, friends and co-workers for the Lord Jesus Christ, I have not been aware of the fact that you have not been sending out colored missionaries to Africa, or I would not have attempted an exception to your rules. It seems to me that if the Lord Jesus Christ were here on earth in person and wanted someone to go on an errand for him, he would not discuss the covering he has placed upon the bodies his blood-bought people to protect the flesh he has made. As I sit here at my table writing you, I can see my Savior struggling with that heavy cross up Calvary's mount. I am told that a man attempted to help my blessed Savior bear that cross. I wonder, did the Lord Jesus Christ stop to see whether that man was white or colored? Dear friends, I would have looked for almost any other difficulty than the one presented me in your letter. Christ has called me to the work. His command is to go. I'm so glad he has counted me worthy to lay his great command upon my heart. I'm so glad he did not designate any particular color to go. Friends, my plans considering my stay here at the Bible Institute have been changed, and I would like to hear your decision as early as possible so that I may know what definitely to ask the Lord for. May he indeed guide you in your work for him. Mary J. McLeod. Wow. Uh, she waited seven, she said she waited seven weeks between the time she read their letter to the time she answered it. Seven. Oh, is yes. there's, <laughs> yeah. And so many emails I answer, you know, and tw- 10 minutes <laughs> later and I regret it. Uh-huh. Uh, so what do you, Mary, what do you gain? Well, what do you glean from that? I had a respect for Mary McLeod Bethune long. I, I knew, I mean, way before I found her letter, I knew that she had wanted to be a missionary and got turned down. And when I started finding the Presbyterian letters mentioning her, I discovered she should have gone to the field where I had served, you know, a century later. Um, I I had an even deeper respect for her that at 19, she could re- write mm-hmm. a truthful honest, respectful letter, but yet call them on their duplicity. Their, their, first of all, they, it, it, she was calling them on what she considered uh, racial discrimination. And she was right. Yes. Yeah. And she didn't call it that. See, the thing that gets me uh-huh. in, in this letter is her strength mm-hmm. comes through because she doesn't whine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the strength of her ca- character comes through so strong because she makes it about the point that it, it shouldn't be the, the the color of my flesh covering me. Exactly. It re- that really doesn't matter. And so it just shows, you know, with her, with the men, uh, the gentleman I mentioned earlier in the program, with Frederick Douglass as well, 
they were calling us to something bigger than or better even mm -hmm. than we could even know the people who were saying no to her, right? Mm -hmm. There's just a richness in that letter. It, it brings me to tears to listen to it because it's so gracious and so dignified and so well-spoken theologically. Mm -hmm. Like she is just pointing out this complete mistake on their part. She says, if you rejected me for any other reason, I would understand uh -huh. Uh -huh. and accept yes. it. But you're rejecting me for something that Jesus would not reject me for. Exactly. And that just brings me, you know, oh. But yet she holds her dignity there. She, and she's you know. very respectful. Mm -hmm. Very, very respectful in a, in a biblical way. And I just, um, I had a much, much deeper respect for her than I already had uh, after reading. Especially a 19-year-old. I was not yes. nearly that mature uh, in any sense at 19. <laughs> well, and to wait that long again, oh, you know, yeah. to, to respond to it. Now, I'm, I'm trying to remember my history. I think, wasn't Hudson Taylor involved with the China Inland Mission mm -hmm. at this time as well in the late, late 1800s? He was, she, I wonder if she ever read about him or heard about him and what he was doing uh, with evangelism. And that was probably, uh, could have been something that was on her heart for Africa as well. Mm -hmm. You probably don't have any information about that. No, but as I said, um, she would have had uh, access to the literature that the Presbyterian Board was putting out, reports of their missionaries currently on the field in Africa. And as I said, as, um, and that's what she pointed out in her letter is, I wasn't aware that you weren't sending out colored missionaries because she knew, in fact, that they did have African-American men and women at that time in Liberia. And while they didn't have it on the Gabun and Carisco uh, field, they had had at least two African-American women serving there in the previous two decades. Yes. Yeah. We're focusing mainly on, you know, her early life and how she got educated and came to Moody. Things explode for her later on. And she is known, Jamie, as you said, as an educator uh, but also a stateswoman, a philanthropist, a humanitarian, a civil rights activist, and also served in the Roosevelt FDR's administration. He, that's how she came into contact with the gentleman that I mentioned earlier, Carter Woodson, because mm -hmm. she was the one to suggest to him uh, that they uh, include uh, that Negro History Week, you know, uh, expand she kind of gave him more of a vision as well. So how did she get from the student at Moody to FDR's administration? Yes, well, she started, uh, you know, we had talked a little bit about the fact that she started teaching. And you could see, you know, even from her letters, she was very poised, very well-spoken, very articulate. And she had seen how education had transformed her life um, and what a key role it was. So she started to participate in mission schools, which she was the product of as well, um, and went south. So this propels her um, further south, all the way to Florida. Um, and in Florida, she starts a very, very small school with nothing. She gathers a few girls together to teach them to read and write. She rented a little tiny place, started this school of nothing, and and it was that poise and drive that kept propelling her further, I believe, where people really found her voice um, inspiring and really wanted to gather around her, not just the children, but the adults too. Yes. And then how did she become, 
how did she get uh, Dr. Cloutier mm-hmm. on the radar of a, a national ministry? Because she just started, as Jamie said, with a handful mm-hmm. of girls teaching them. How did she get to be on that radar? I actually don't know that. Jamie might be the better person to answer that one. Well, she she started to get involved um, in politics a bit. She was getting people to register to vote. And so that was part of it. Um, so she became a force to be reckoned with in this area. They said one year she registered almost as many African-Americans as um, women, which they were new to the vote, too. There were almost as many African-American women as there were um, white women, and that was due to her efforts. So she really um, started to just kind of face off with some of the discrimination that was going on and to advocate for people to be able to learn and be educated, even adults. So she started to be an advocate of voice, and that caught the attention of administration. So she was invited several times to the White House. Um, FDR was later, but um, even earlier, just to be among people who were getting to be known as voices on behalf of African-Americans. Yeah. In the chapter, A Legacy of Hope, you write, traffic in the nation's capital rushed frantically forward, horns honking, people bustling by, nothing like the slow, leisurely pace of Florida. Mary approached an empty taxi cab to take her to the White House, but the driver turned, looked at Mary, and shook his head with a decisive no. Mary opened the cab door anyway and took her seat. (laughs) This cab is empty, she told the driver. This cab is empty, she told the driver. Why did you tell me I couldn't enter? I don't drive Negroes, replied the man. Well, you're driving me, said Dr. <laughs> Mary McLeod Bethune. And that, that again, you know, you talk about the letter that she wrote when she was 19. That took backbone there, didn't it, Jamie? Yes. And she was, in that particular visit, he had to drop her at the White House. So imagine his chagrin <laughs> when he realized she was a guest of the president and he had just insulted her. Um, so, so yeah, it was that, it was that kind of fearlessness. Um, and I, you know, I know that she, she had some worry actually about starting to be too involved politically because she had work still, she thought here to do in Florida. So she was a bit torn to accept positions, but she ended up doing so, um, under Franklin Roosevelt. That's Jamie Janos. Dr. Mary Cloutier is with us. And straight ahead, a caller who says, the person you're talking about today had a big impact on my life. You're going to hear that next. You know who else is having a big impact on people's lives? The Ministry of CareNet. Every day in some 1,200 locations around the country, on the phone, online, women and men are making decisions about what to do with an unplanned pregnancy. And I'm glad CareNet is there to give a different option than abortion. Click the green CareNet button at chrisfabrylive.org. I think you'll be encouraged as well. There are free resources for you. If you have a family member or a friend, maybe somebody at church who says, you know, women need health care. Go to the site, download the free booklet that they've put together. You'll see it under the resources tab. Click CareNet today at chrisfabrylive.org. And don't miss our final segment straight ahead on Moody Radio. I told you history is fascinating and it is instructed to us today. I hope our conversation here about Mary McLeod with you is encouraging to you wherever you are 
doesn't matter what your skin color is. This that letter that she wrote when she was nineteen. I agree. It just sends chills, you know, down your your spine when you hear the the character, and then the legacy that she leaves. You can find out more about uh, the featured resource when others shuddered. It has some chapters in there about uh, Mary that we're talking about. Jamie Janos put that together. Dr. Mary Cloutier is also joining us. And I want you to hear from Grace now in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Hi, Grace, go right ahead. Well, I wanted to say that um, I was inspired by her. I guess when I was about 12 years old or so, I read everything I could about African-American history. And I remember seeing her picture looking so strong and and uh, like a woman on a mission. And I decided that I was going to become a teacher. I'm 63 years old now, and I've been teaching for 30 years. But she okay. just inspired me so. Mm-hmm. I accepted the Lord as my Savior, and um, then I, I was still teaching in a school. I thought I was calling, this don't sound crazy, um, to teach just black children because I was black. But how about the Lord has had me in every school I've ever worked in has been um, a predominantly Caucasian school. Now, let me tell you why that's wonderful. I have lots, and my students that have never experienced black people before in a positive way would say, can I touch your hair? Can I talk to you about, what about this and that? And they would ask me questions. And I guess the greatest thing I have was I was in a store one time and I heard my student on the other side say, oh, grandma, I want you to come and meet my teacher. Come and meet my teacher. Well, when grandmother came around on the other side, she had no idea that I was African-American because her child, I had loved her baby so, and the other Mm -hmm. students that she didn't even mention it to her mother. Mm -hmm. Um. The other thing is, um, I, I witnessed in public school, we were talking the other day about something, and one of my students raised their hands and said, you know, it seems like all the people that try to do right, they're either wounded or injured or whatever else. And he named Dr. Martin Luther King and a few others, and I said, and Jesus Christ also. Mm. And we were able, because they had brought it up, but I never would have been able to do that. If I hadn't read somewhere about, oh, Lord, I get emotional, about Dr. Bethune. Yes. And about how it's not what you don't have, Mm. but it's what you work with, what you have. I'm the oldest of seven children, the first in my family to get a college education. And so she's a a great role model for anybody, not just for black people, Mm -hmm. but for anybody. Exactly. feels like because I don't have this, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my it's up to you. It's up to you. And sometimes no is an answer on our way to yes, where God really wants us to be. Because I, I, as I said, I thought I was going to be teaching in inner city schools. And how about since I've had my degree that I've never taught there. I've always yes. taught in areas where our children need to see that God is I know what, and I, I know what like I'm Grace, I'm going to do a whole hour with you. I, <laughs> I love your story. I love the passion and the emotion too, when you're talking about Dr. Bethune and what she did in your life. 
And I, I want to, we just got a couple of minutes. Grace, thank you very much for your call here. Thanks for your service. I love that story about the, the grandma, you know, and the grandma had no idea what skin color Grace was, but, uh, boy, so many different things that we could bring out. Did, did she ever get to, to talk with the person who paid for her education basically was the benefactress of Mary? Um, yeah, she did. Um, one of the misconceptions about Miss Mary Christman, who had lived in Colorado, and I'm guessing she had read in the Presbyterian magazine. She was not a Quaker. I know her biographies say that Miss Christman was a Quaker, but she was not. She was the daughter of a Presbyterian minister, and she was a, a professional teacher in Colorado. And I'm guessing that she read in the Presbyterian magazines these um, descriptions of Scotia Seminary for African-American girls. And um, they would always encourage readers to consider sponsoring a student for $45 a year. And so I'm guessing that's where the connection happened, that she had responded and said, I'll, I'll support one student. And Mary was the one chosen from her area. And Mary gives the impression that they, from the time Mary Christman started uh paying her way at Scotia, there was some kind of a correspondence. Here's the thing, too, is Mary Christman was only about eight years older than Mary, uh, Mary McLeod. Mary McLeod was about 12 when she started at Scotia Seminary, which means Mary Christman, who was sponsoring her, was only about 20 or 21. And Miss uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, in her later years, talked about going to California, to L.A., to receive uh, yet another honor. Uh, and Miss Christman at that time was also an elderly woman and living in California. And so she came at uh, Mary's invitation. And Mary um, honored her for having been uh, such an incredible influence in her life. It was her... Uh, financial support that uh, that allowed Mary to do the schoolwork that I mean it was Mary's schoolwork but she yeah. didn't have the support and our Moody students also are, are supported by people who offer towards their education so I it's love still the connection going on. yeah yep. uh, the, many years later mm -hmm. and uh, she actually got to go to Africa later on in her life we don't have time to tell that story but just to kind of close the loop, that was something that she wanted to do, and she had the opportunity later on. Well, what did I tell you? History is fascinating, and you will go down one trail like I did with Carter G. Woodson, and then you'll go down the trail of Mary McLeod Bethune. And look what we learned. Look how her life informs ours. Again, if you want to find out about the book that we've talked about, When Others Shuddered, with D, when others shuddered, go to chrisfabrylive.org and you can see it right there. Click through today's information right there at chrisfabrylive.org. This program originally aired in 2017 with Jamie Janos and Dr. Mary Cloutier. Our thanks to them and thank you for your participation, for listening, responding, even supporting us in February. If you can, we'd love to hear from you. Again, you can find out how to do all of that and a whole lot more at chrisfabrylive.org. Our program's a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.